Tonight, baptism, we're going to do a definition and outline uh, of what we're going to look at. And then I'm going to go through what biblical baptism is. So the definition, first of all, uh, now this would be what every uh, Baptist believes, but it's what every Baptist believes because it's what the Bible says. And um, baptism is the immersion in water by an ordained minister, a pastor or a deacon, under the authority of a, a local New Testament church, of a believer in Christ, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe and teach about baptism here at Antiquity Baptist Church. The outline that we're going to look at is we're going to look at, first of all, the mode and act of baptism. Secondly, that baptism is a figure or a symbol or an emblem that pictures a spiritual reality. And thirdly and lastly, we're going to look at that we're to be baptized after we believe. You're baptized after you believe. In Acts 17, depending on who may be listening to this, uh, this is what we ought to do if we are trying to come to a conclusion about what the Bible teaches on any doctrine. We need to be like the Bereans. Verse 11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. So they are commended by the Apostle and commended by the Holy Spirit as being more noble. Why? They received the word with all readiness of mind. They were paying attention. And they received it. They didn't reject it. And they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So what I would say is search the scriptures daily to find out if what the preacher said was so about baptism. All right. First of all, biblical baptism. Let's study the scriptural mode and act of baptism. Allow me to just get through this material. Some of it you might find more interesting than others. But there's two Greek words, baptizo and baptisma. Those two Greek words were brought into the English language, a letter-for-letter equivalent. And so what happens with baptizo, the O is dropped, and an E is put there, and so we have it in our Bibles, baptize. With the word baptisma, that is, the A is removed, and we call it baptism. So those two words, if you study the Greek lexicons and what the lexicographers have to say about it, a lexicon is just simply a Greek, de- uh, Greek dictionary. Okay, so just think dictionary. Uh, It's got all the Greek words in there. If you study those things, what you're going to find out about the word uh, baptizo or baptisma is that it means to dip, plunge, or immerse in a liquid. To dip, plunge, or immerse into a liquid. That's why when we baptize, we do a water baptism down into a tank. That's why we go to all the trouble to have a tank. That's why we don't have a bowl, you know, standing up on a pedestal in our, in our sanctuary. Now, Grimm's lexicon of the New Testament, this is some, somebody who was popular both in Europe and in America and is like the leader of uh, Greek definitions. He says that, um, that the word baptizo means to dip repeatedly, to immerse, submerge, 
or to cleanse by dipping or submerging or to overwhelm. There's a man by the name of Professor Moses, Moses Stewart. Now, he's a paedo-baptist. Does anybody know what a paedo-baptist is? A paedo-baptist is somebody who would take a, an infant and baptize them. Okay? That's a paedo. Paedo, a podiatrist, you know, that word having to do uh, with, with the feet. Uh, kids are down by the feet. So uh, Pato's talking about children. And uh, they would baptize infants. Now this guy, he is a Pato baptist but he's one of the greatest scholars that America ever produced out of uh, Massachusetts. And he said this, he says, Baptizo means to dip, plunge, or immerse in any liquid. All lexicographers and critics of any note are agreed in this, This comes from his essay on baptism. So it's interesting to know that people who are of a different persuasion, such as Anglican or Episcopal or Presbyterian, uh, that even they would say that, yes, that word means to dip, plunge, to put under the water. Here's a professor from the uh, College of Yale. Remember that? It used to be a missionary sending uh, outfit, Yale, but now it's a a den of infidelity. But... um, He was an accomplished scholar, and he says, of the apostolic age, you say, what's that? The times of the apostles and their their disciples during their lives. The ordinary mode of baptism was by immersion. Did you ever wonder what did the church do back in the first century? They baptized by immersion. Now, the usage of the word in classical Greek writings, you take these guys, Heraclides, um, Lucian, Hippocrates, uh, Strabo, these guys, they were Greek uh, philosophers and writers. They existed before the Christian era. So for like 700 years before the Christian church started and before people were being baptized uh, in, in water, these guys were writing and using this word, baptizo. And they were using it for a variety of different things. Maybe to uh, dip some material like a cloth into a liquid to dye it, to make it purple or something. They were using it, talking about washing things and cleansing things. So they were using it for 700 years. All these guys, they, they, they were dead by the time uh, John the Baptist shows up and says, uh, repent you know, and be baptized. They were dead, but they used the word and they used it the same way that the Christian church used it in the first century. That's, that's good to know. I want you to know tonight that what we do is biblical and it's historical. If you go all the way back to the antiquity of the church, the very beginning, this is what they were doing. It's good for us to know that. Um, even though Pado-Baptists, they agree with this meaning and they would say, yes, that's, that's what happened. Take, for example, John Calvin. I'm not a Calvinist, but Calvin and then the Presbyterians... In his institutes, he says, but whether the person who is baptized be wholly immersed, or whether thrice or once, or whether water be only poured or sprinkled upon him, it's of no importance. That's what he thought. The churches should be able to do whatever they want to do. And they can, and they do. But that's what he said. Churches ought to be left at liberty in this respect to act according to their difference of countries. Then he says this, the very word baptizo, however, signifies to immerse. And it is certain that immersion was the practice of the ancient church. So if John Calvin is your hero, he said it's the certain that the immersion was the practice of the ancient church. You have an Anglican archbishop. This is the Church of England. 
John uh, Tillotson, he makes this comment, Anciently, those who were baptized were immersed and buried in water to represent their death to sin, and then did rise up out of the water to signify their entrance upon a new life, and to this custom the apostle alludes. That's the same thing we believe. That uh, it's a picture of a death, burial, and resurrection with Christ, risen to walk in newness of life. Anglican Bishop Thomas Newton says, Baptism was usually performed by immersion or dipping the whole body under water to represent the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Did you notice his word? Represent. To represent the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and thereby signify the person's own dying to sin, the destruction of its power, and his resurrection to a new life. This would be prior to the beginning of uh, you know, the, the Great Awakening in America. This would be in England prior to all of that, that they're saying these things. You say, what did people believe before they got over here to America? What I just read. That's what they believed. Every heresy just about that's going around the world today started in America. Isn't that incredible? Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. People say, ah, you shouldn't be going around and passing out tracts to people and you shouldn't be knocking on doors. They'll think you're the Jehovah's Witness. And I want to say, hey, real Christians were doing that long before they ever started doing that. So we just need to get back to it. There's a lady that came in here Sunday night and she had a Mormon knock on her door. And I said, isn't that funny? She's been coming here you know, quite a few times now with her son. And uh, I said, isn't that funny? I said, did a Mormon ever come to your door before? She said, no. So I said, so it's just been since you started coming here. She said, yeah. You know what that means, folks? That means there is a spiritual side of life that you can't see. There is spiritual darkness, wickedness in high places, sending their little minions. Whenever a person, this, I've seen this happen a multitude of times. Well, a multitude is overdoing it. Several times, handful of times. I've seen this happen. Either somebody gets saved or they get in church and they really get in and start growing under good Bible-believing preaching. And then what happens? The devil sends a Jehovah's Witness or somebody from uh, some denomination trying to mess them up. Uh, it happens just as soon as they get saved or as soon as they get in church and get grounded. You've got to watch out for that. You've got to realize you're in a spiritual battle and it's for the soul's of men, and it's a fight between Jesus and the devil. And you get on Jesus' side and get in church and have, and I'm not trying to set myself up to be more than what I am, but it's so important that you, your church is the place where you get your teaching from. That's important, it really is. I'm not saying you can't watch TV, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying you can't get on sermon audio. Get on sermon audio, listen to a bunch of sermons. I'm not saying that. But if somebody comes to you, and starts to challenge what you have been taught from this church. And I will say that because, listen folks, I'm certain about what I teach. And I do my homework. So when somebody comes and tries to teach you something different than what you're getting at church, you at least owe it to me and to this church that you're covenanting together with, saying we hold these body of, this body of belief, uh, this statement of faith, we hold to these beliefs you at least owe it to us to come and say, hey, I heard something and it seems pretty convincing. Is this right? Just do that. At least that. Okay? Because I'm telling you, it's a spiritual battle out there and I've seen it happen more than once. A lot of people are getting drawn into the apostate Roman Catholic Church. And it's happening more than what you think. And they're Baptists. A lot of Baptists doing that. Getting in there. 
And uh, I got something to say about that. So if that's happening, yeah, you gotta, you better talk to somebody, get somebody to help you out. Um, John Wesley, the celebrated founder of Methodism, he was Church of England. Then he came and started preaching there, and then here, and Methodism started as a result of it. And uh, this is what he says about baptism: buried with him, alluding to the ancient manner of baptizing by immersion. That's his own note from his teaching from Romans six. Barnabas, the companion of St. Paul, here's some ancient history. The companion of St. Paul, Hermas, writing about A.D. 95. Justin Martyr, about A.D. 140. Tertullian, about A.D. 204. Hippolytus, uh, Gregory, Basil, Ambrose, Cyril, Chrysostom, Chrysostom all the way up in A.D. 400. All speaking of being dipped or buried or immersed or plunged in the water in baptism, and none of them make the least allusion to any application of water to the person for baptism by either sprinkling, pouring, washing, or any other mode, whatever. What we're talking about right now is the correct mode. But you should also be getting from this, you should also be impressed with, we're doing exactly what the church did in the first century. We're doing the same thing. And we believe it just like they did. Um, Still, our final authority is not a lexicon, it's not scholarship, and it's not even the church fathers. Our final authority is the Bible. You You say, why? Well, look at Psalm 138. I know we've gone here before, but if you don't have it marked, this is your chance to mark it. Underline the the phrase, put a little half crescent shape or a fingernail beside it. I like to do that. It's easy for me to find things later on. Circle a word, whatever you do, if you mark in your Bible. Psalm 138, verse 2. The Bible has to be our authority. And I know what folks can say. You have your interpretation. Somebody else has their interpretation. Okay? If you want to do that and go out into a fog of uh, understanding about anything that has to do with God and just live in the blur, the gray area, if you want to do that, go ahead. A lot of people are doing that right now. They say this, this is the generation that is unraveling. That's what they say about this generation today. They're unraveling. They're questioning everything. They're letting go of everything, and there's no, there's no right or wrong. Everything is unraveling. That's what they say. Don't do that about your Bible. The Bible doesn't say to do that. The Bible says that what God's Word says is what's so, and that's what you ought to believe. That's the impression that you get from the Bible. The Bible says that, uh, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God doth man live. And the Bible says that we are to be fully persuaded, fully persuaded in what we believe. Even if we have some minute differences in what we believe, be fully persuaded in it. And look, if you do this, if you come to the Word of God and you look at it with, with the same kind of uh, respect and you give it the same prominence that God gives to it, He'll bless you for it. You say, what, what does God think about the Bible? Well, this is the inspired words of David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, but inspired scripture, verse 2, Psalm 138, verse 2, I will worship toward thy holy temple, praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Just That's just awesome. I love that part right there. Um, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. 
Thou hast magnified thy word. When we baptize, we baptize in the name of the Lord. That's the authority that we have. And we have no right to baptize unless we've been given the authority, but Jesus gives us the authority, gives us the right, gives that to men, and gives that to specific men, though. And it's under the authority and auspices of the local church and is given to pastors and deacons. In other words, if your kid goes off to camp and uh, makes a profession of faith and they baptize them at camp, that's wrong. That's all kinds of wrong. Because it's not under the authority of the local New Testament church. They need, need to get baptized in church after a profession of faith. But that authority, it's in the name of Jesus. That's pretty, pretty high authority, right? If I were to say, do you stop in the name of the law? Well, what's my authority? It's the law, you know, in the name of the law. With the full authority of the law, you know, you're going to come under judgment if you don't stop doing what you're doing. Uh, and, and I'm apprehending you, citizens arrest. Well, I'm telling you in the, in the authority of Jesus Christ to be baptized upon a profession of faith after believing. And I can do it because that authority has been given. But that's the name of Jesus Christ. But God says he puts his word, magnifies it above the name of Jesus Christ. Do you see how important the word of God is? That means it's more important than me. It's more important than my name. It's more important than the name of this church. You say, what does that mean? It means something. It's got to mean something. That means there's a lot of churches today who think, yeah, but the name of my church and the name that we have in the community is more important than what the Word of God says. Therefore, we're going to be soft on the issue of family, how a family is really defined. Therefore, we're going to be soft on the issue of separation because we're more concerned about the name of our church. We don't want people talking bad about us. Listen, there's something more important than the name of your church. It's the Word of God. God will shut this church down and His Word will go on. But you have people who are getting together. They call evangelicals and Catholics together. And they're signing things and getting together. One of them is that guy uh, that was in that chosen Christmas show. Um, the singer that dresses like Ellen DeGenerate. Um, the guy that wears culottes. What's his name? I'll think of it in a minute. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's at the very head of trying to lead the charismatic evangelical Christians back to Rome to get into bed with Rome. You see, folks, we stand against that. We stand against that. And you know what happens when you do that? You get a bad name with certain people who are soft on separation who say, no, the Bible says it's not okay to wish them Godspeed if they're, if they're a false teacher. It's not okay. If they, if they teach another gospel, you're not allowed to unite with them if they teach another gospel. But you see, there's some churches that are more concerned about their name in the community than they are about this. A lot of times people say, would you come and be a part of this certain prayer breakfast that's going on? All the churches in the area are getting together and doing it. Yeah, everybody's going to be there. Church of Christ, Methodists. You say, do you hate those people? No, not at all. Not at all. I, I, I love people with, with this, as much as I can possibly, out of a sincere heart, love people with the same love that God has shown to me, it should flow through me. And I want everybody to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. 
But the church of Christ teaches a false gospel. You understand that? I was talking to a guy from the, uh, another Baptist church in town, not this one down here, but another one. And he was saying, yeah, it's great. Won't you come be a part of this minister's association? Yeah, they got the Church of Christ in it. They got this Southern Baptist church. They got this over here. And, and uh, I'm just smiling. I'm just, I, just, I didn't start a fight. I'm not trying to pick a fight with anybody. But I just said, I'm already part of a minister's fellowship. And I don't want to get too much on my plate. Um, so, no thanks. You know, I don't have to start a fight. I probably should have said something, but um, I'm a really easy person to get along with, sometimes too easy. Sometimes I wonder if I won't answer for some of that stuff. No, I won't be a part of that. To do that would to condone them and say what you're doing is okay. And it's not. I can't condone that. So, you see... His word is magnified above all his name and he has given it to us and he's given us his spirit to teach us and to guide us into all truth. And he's given us pastors and teachers. But this is where the rubber meets the road. Like Brother Clifford was saying, if you're searching, if you're looking for truth, the entrance of thy words giveth light. God will keep on leading you into the light and into more truth. If you come humbly... He resists the proud, but he gives grace unto the humble. If you come humbly just as a child and say, God, I just want to understand it. I don't want to be right. I don't care if I win an argument. I want to, be, I want to have the understanding from this that the original writers meant when they wrote it to the people that they wrote it to. And most of it, folks, most of what God wants us to know is so easy. It's so easy. If you look at uh, Matthew... Matthew 3. It's so easy to understand. Everything that you, you have to know, that you have to get to be saved, everything that you need in order to grow and to be sanctified, it's so easy to understand. There's other things that you're not going to get right off the bat. You might not get it till later on in your life, some of that strong meat. I don't understand everything about election, but I know I'm chosen. I know I am one of the elect, but I don't understand everything about it. I know I don't believe like a Calvinist about it, I know that there's serious errors there, but a lot of what we believe is the same. But I don't understand everything about it, but I'm just saying, Lord, I, I want I more truth. And if some of my Baptist, independent Baptist brethren don't like it, um, that's okay. I'm not worried about my name as a preacher. I'm worried about I want to know the truth. And uh, I would never stand up and just tell you something that's so without the authority of the Word of God. Right? And if I'm ever not certain about something, I'll tell you, I'm not real sure about this. But that's not a good way to be preaching all the time. You've got to preach with certainty. So, these things we're certain about. The, uh, the final authority for baptism, Matthew 3.16, he says here, uh, Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. So he went up out of the water. He was in the water. Went up out of it. Also in, in Mark chapter 1, I'll just read these real quick. I'll go through these and we'll look up some more in just a second. But Mark says that Jesus was baptized of John in Jordan and straightway coming up out of the water. He came up out of the water. He was with John in Jordan. And uh, that's when he was baptized. Now John the Baptist, he was baptizing in a place, it says in John chapter 3, verse 23, where there was much water because he baptized by immersion. If he wasn't, 
He wouldn't need much water. But he needed to go to a place where there was much water. He needed a whole bunch of it. And he needed it to be deep. So he went to that place. And that's the one that baptized Jesus. Philip and uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, he followed the same mode of baptism by immersion. They went down both into the water. The design of baptism uh, argues in favor of full immersion in water. Um, And that will bring us to our next point. But so far what you've had is that the biblical uh, authority, based on what the word means, based on the accounts of people being baptized in the Bible, tells you that it's by immersion. Now we'll keep building on that. It's going to be kind of like uh, dominoes. You ever played with dominoes? Set them up and then you just knock one over and it hits another one, hits another one. We're going somewhere. This is all in a logical sequence. Kind of like uh, bringing a camera into focus. Right now it might seem a little bit blurry, but it'll come into focus. So the design of baptism, what is it designed for? It's designed to be a figure, a symbol. Would you look at 1 Peter 3? A figure. 1 Peter 3 and uh, verse 21. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. It's designed to be a figure, a symbol. You can call it a symbol, an emblem. You can call it a, a sign even. But we do not call it a sacrament. A sacrament means that it confers grace. That means it's salvific. That means it, it's salvatory. It's, it's, it actually helps to save you. That's what the Catholics believe. That it's a part of your salvation. And uh, the things are so closely related. They're so closely related. But you look at the plain reading of Scripture. What does Peter actually say about baptism? Verse 21. He says, The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. You say, Pastor John, do you believe that baptism saves us? What's Peter say right there? He says, Baptism doth now also save us. Okay, is that the Bible? Yes. Is that inspired scripture? Yes. Okay, baptism doth now also save us. Now hold on to that thought. But you see, when you read the Bible, don't read the Bible and say, I won't accept that, but I'll accept something else. Don't do that. Again, it'll come into, it'll come into focus. The like figure. First of all, what does Peter say about baptism? It's a figure. It's like the other figure he was talking about. He was talking about Noah and the ark, and eight souls that were saved because they got into the ark. And Peter was saying, Jesus is like that ark. The eight people that got inside, they were saved from the watery wrath of God's judgment. They were saved from the water that killed everybody else because they got into the ark. Jesus is like that ark, he's saying. Get into the ark of safety. Get into Christ, and you'll be safe from the judgment, the wrath of Almighty God. So baptism is the like figure, just like the ark and the water and Noah and his family. A figure, what is that? A symbol, a picture, an emblem, a sign. Whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. It saves us in what, in what sense? In the sense that it is a figure that pictures it. It saves us in that sense. Yep. Yes. And there's a lot, there's a lot of figures... In the Old Testament, take the, the, the Passover lamb, okay? Take the lamb to the door of your house. 
slay the lamb, take the blood, the hyssop, put it on the doorposts. When I see that blood, I'm going to pass over you, right? Well, the blood saved them, right? If they didn't have that blood on there, they'd be in trouble. Death angel come down to that house and take everybody out. So the blood saved them, right? Was it really the blood, though? Is that the source? No, but it pictures something. The source of, of the salvation was you did what God told you to do, and then based upon God's person, he's merciful, wants to save you. Based upon God's per- person, his promise, and doing what he told you to do, you put that blood on there, you're saved. That's a figure. It's a picture of something. You put it on the doorposts and put it on the lintel, Right? You look at the cross, you got a red stain where his head was, you got red stains where his hands were. It's a picture of the cross, it's a figure. Uh, every time they went to the, to the tabernacle with their sacrifice, the shedding, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission, right? But the sacrifice, every sacrifice on that altar pictured what was going to happen when Jesus came to the cross. It was all foreshadow. That language is even used in Hebrews. It, it was a shadow of things to come. And so it was all a figure, all a picture. Same thing with baptism. We'll, we'll get there. Just hold on to that. But just know that's what we believe about baptism. Like figure, whereunto baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. Now notice that. Peter's saying the baptism doesn't put away the filth of your flesh. What is baptism? It doesn't put away the filth of your flesh. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. They that are in the flesh got a problem. Because if they die in that condition, they die in their sins, they die lost. What can purify and put away the filth of the flesh? Well, there's only one substance. It's the blood of Jesus Christ, right? But the answer, what is baptism? It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. That's what baptism is. Peter says it's a figure. And it's what you do, once you have a good conscience with God, it's your answer to God that you, that you have your good conscience. How do you actually get a good conscience? Listen, baptism for salvation can never give you a good conscience. It can never give you a clean conscience. It'll never clear your conscience. If you're trying to get baptized to be saved, you say, how do you know? Everybody who's trying it knows deep down in their hearts. That it cannot, it cannot give you a good conscience. You say, what does? Just one reference, Hebrews, is to the left. What does? Well, we know what does, but you've got to see it in, in the Scriptures. Um, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. And uh, look at Hebrews 10. Yep, yep, that's right. Uh, Hebrews 10, well actually just look at 9, we'll shortcut this. 9, verse 13, for the sake of time. 9, verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. You see that? You see that? Don't miss that. Peter said, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. That's what Peter said about baptism. Peter said, that can't do it. But here, Paul said in the Old Testament system that the blood of bulls and goats sanctifieth 
to the purifying of the flesh. You say, what does that mean? I'm just going to throw this out there, okay? We can't go into it. It's a big study. But what it has to do with is it's Jewish purification rites in the Old Testament. They had a lot of them. It had to do with water and blood. And for Gentiles coming to the Jewish religion and, and becoming a Jewish proselyte, they had to be baptized by immersion. That was something that was known to the Jews when John the Baptist showed up. That's how Gentiles got in, right? So, but in the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats and the heifer and the sprinkling of the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. So something did at one time, a sprinkling. How much more? You know why it did? Because <laughs> it represented the, the sacrifice, on the altar that was a shadow of Christ. But look, how much more shall the blood of Christ... Okay, just underline that. Just underline it and just say, this is what the Bible says. What can wash away my sins? What can give me a good conscience? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself. Now, you don't understand that, and neither do I, but we know He offered Himself. How it was through the eternal Spirit... He did everything. He had the Spirit without measure. Without spot to God, He offered Himself. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God. How do you get your conscience purged? How do you get a clear conscience? By placing your faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Once you have placed your faith in the blood of Jesus Christ and believed on Him for salvation, we're going to look at this another time, then you're a candidate for baptism, right? Okay? You have to believe. Baptism is for believers only. And when you believe, what are you believing on? You're believing Jesus' death on the cross, His shed blood for your sins. And that's the only thing that can purge your conscience. Now, Peter just told you that uh, it's the answer of a good conscience. So the person who gets baptized has a good conscience. And following the Lord in believers' baptism is the answer of a good conscience. So in other words, the person that comes to the baptismal waters already has a good conscience. Let that sink in. Let that sink in for a minute. When I got baptized, I had a good conscience that when I died, I was going to go to heaven. And I knew when I messed up, confessed my sins to God, I knew they were forgiven based on the authority of the Word of God. I knew that. But um, I didn't know right away that I was supposed to get baptized right after I believe. The two just go together. And I didn't know that the waters of baptism, the, the washing of regeneration is what it pictures. That when I get into the water, it pictures my sins being washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. But it's a figure of the only thing that can give me a good conscience. But I didn't know all that. All I knew is that I was convinced from the Bible I was supposed to be baptized. But you know what? I had a good conscience. You say, how did that work? That's the experience of somebody who's truly born again and then uh, does things the way that the Lord... And it's only of His mercy that He did it. You see, it's the answer of a good conscience. It's a figure. And you say, yes, but it says that baptism doth now also save us. Okay, that's what it says. You say, is that what you believe? Yes. Okay, there's, there's fine details to it, but I'm not going to muddy up the waters with them. Is that what Peter said? Yes. What baptism actually saves you? Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized of that you can't can't follow, Peter. Peter said, yes, I can, Lord. 
He said, no, you can't. Well, he said, can you? Okay. And, and he was talking about the cross. He's saying, I'm going to go to the cross. And there was a baptism that had nothing to do with water. Jesus was going to be immersed and, and fall and sink under the wrath of God for our sins. Be immersed in that judgment and become sin for us. He who knew no sin become sin for us. Peter couldn't do that. There's a baptism that's the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Pentecostals got that all messed up. They think that you have to be baptized with the Spirit with the initial evidence of the speaking in tongues or else you're not saved. That everybody has to speak in tongues. Even though the Bible says that not everybody will speak in tongues. It's a false teaching. But they have a kernel of truth. There is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is that? It's what happens the moment that you get saved. And like Brother Clifford says, it's the outward expression of an inner reality, of an inner faith. Something that happened on the inside. What happened on the inside? You were born again. Your spirit was given new life. You were placed into Christ. Romans 6 describes the meaning of baptism. It describes the doctrinal meaning and reality, the spiritual reality of baptism. You were placed into Christ. Therefore, when Christ died, you died. And you're still seen as dead with Christ on the cross in some way. And when He was buried, you were buried When he rose again, you rose again. Baptism pictures all of that. What is already a spiritual reality. And listen, you say, how do you know that that, that's the case? Like I said, the dominoes just keep falling over. Keep falling over. But you have to just believe simply what the Bible says. You say, what am I supposed to believe? Believe like Peter said. It's a figure. You can call it a symbol, picture, sign. It's a figure. And it's the answer of a good conscience. And if it bothers you to say that baptism saves us, you've got a problem with the Bible. Okay? What baptism is it that actually saves us? It's when you're placed into Christ. That's what saves you. You say, what are you talking about? Noah said, get in the ark, get in the ark, judgment's coming. Get in the ark. Okay? When do you get in Christ? When you step in the water? That's the question, isn't it? When you get in Christ, when you step in the water. When you get in Christ is when you take your, your faith, place your faith in the right object. That's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When you place your faith in Him, in Christ, that's the teaching of the rest of the Bible. You place your faith in, in Him, then you believe and are born again. And then therefore, Philip could say to the Ethiopian eunuch, when he says, what hinders me to be baptized? Philip could say this. There's one thing. Baptism is for believers only. Do you believe? Yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That means he believed in a trinity. The Son, the Father, right? I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And Philip said, you believe that with all your heart? And he said, yeah. He said, all right then, come on. You can get baptized. It's not hard. But people complicate it. It's not hard. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Period. You know? All right. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Right? I mean, do we believe the Bible or not? You got to believe, get baptized, you'll be saved. Right? Now you say, you sound like a Campbellite. Uh uh. I sound like a Bible. 
He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. What's the essential ingredient? He that believeth not shall be damned. Some people read it like this. He that is not baptized will be damned. Is that what it said? No. Read it. He that believeth not shall be damned. What is the essential ingredient? Essential belief. If you don't believe it, don't make a bit of difference. It don't make a drop a difference how wet you get. That means if you baptize a baby, they're not saved. That means if you take a whole army and sprinkle them and uh, christen them, they're not saved. Even though they got baptized according to your mode, they're only saved if they really believed. And they could be all messed up on what the doctrine of baptism means. But listen, even if you're like, well, I don't know. Did you believe on Christ? What are you trusting right now? That's the important thing. What are you trusting right now? And then the rest of this stuff starts to come into focus. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. That's what the Bible says. I don't really care what anybody thinks about it. But I care about what my folks that I serve think about it. Well, I don't care what anybody thinks about it outside of these four walls. It's what the Bible says. And you say, what, what is the baptism that saves you? And the baptism that saves you is when you're placed into Christ. Romans chapter 6. If you get in the ark of safety, you're saved. Does that happen at the moment that you get into the waters of baptism? No. It, you can't say that. You realize that? I can't say that. I don't have the authority to say it. You say, why? The thief on the cross. The Lord puts that in there just to keep, like, just to mess somebody up. That in pride wants to say, I'm right and you're wrong, I think. The thief on the cross, did he get baptized? Did Jesus say, hold on, let's get down off of here. Let me call John over here. Get this man off this cross. John's standing right there. John will do it. No. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. What happened when uh, Jason, Lily's mom, prayed with a simple childlike faith and asked Jesus to be her Savior before she died on that bed of cancer? She died lost because she couldn't get up off that bed. Now, after that, she went swimming and fell into a pool. Nobody baptized her. Actually, I think that was the other way around. I think it was shortly before that. All right, folks, let's go ahead and pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Tonight, listen, if you know somebody, if you know somebody that's in the Church of Christ, they believe that baptism is what saves you. We separate from doctrinal error. So we don't fellowship with them. If you know somebody that's like that, now you can't tell whether or not they're saved, but you can say if you actually believe what your church teaches, you're not saved. You ought to pray for that person. We don't fellowship with them. We don't treat them like they're like us. You ought to pray for that person. If you, if you know somebody who was baptized as an infant and they call themselves a Christian, but there's no fruit in their lives. You know what they need? Not an argument about baptism. They just need to hear the gospel. They just need somebody to love them to Christ, give them the gospel. And tonight, if you were to die right now, and you were to stand before God, what are you trusting in? 
If he were to ask you, why should I allow you into heaven? Honestly, between you and the Lord, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting that you're just hoping you're going to make it? Honestly, seriously. Are you trusting, I hope I make it? You're trusting in yourself. That's because you've never really placed your faith 100%. And the only thing that can wash away your sins. Jesus washed us from our sins in his own blood. Revelation 1.5. That's the only thing that can save you. And then you're saved and you're kept by the power of God. Most people who are trusting in baptism for salvation and church membership are also trusting in their good works. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. They're going about to establish their own righteousness. Am I maybe talking to you tonight with all the grace and the love that I can possibly draw out of my heart? Don't trust anything. Don't trust anything but Christ. And stop trying and just start trusting and say, Lord, I don't have assurance of salvation. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you buried. I believe you rose again the third day. And I'm putting my faith 100% in Jesus, but I don't have assurance of salvation. I'm not going to trust in any good thing I've ever done. But I don't have assurance. Would you give me assurance? I lost my assurance. I feel like I lost my salvation. Would you help me? He will. Would you give me assurance? But you've got to stop trusting in something He didn't want you to trust in. It's a figure. It's a like figure. And if you've been through the real experience of spirit baptism then your water baptism pictured that. But if you've never truly been born again, you know it. There's three people that know it. You, God, and the devil. And you just need to get alone with God and say, I was messed up here. And help me to get this straightened out. Be like a Berean. Search the Scriptures daily till you get it settled. Lord, I thank You tonight. I thank You for this study. Thank You for what we can know from the Scriptures. And there's things in there that are deep, uh, things that are deeper than what we might uh, see at first blush and first reading. Uh, But Father, um, we thank You that everything that we need to know for salvation, we can know. It's so easy. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And the devil's so good at just throwing a monkey wrench in there and getting people messed up and getting them off track. And Father, uh, we do pray for the people that we know, uh, people that are either trying to work for their own salvation in the Seventh-day Adventism uh, cult or in the Church of Christ or one thing or another, Lord, people who have been baptized uh, as a baby or baptized as a young person in a, in a Baptist church like this, had a baptism but just no real salvation. Uh, Father, I pray for an awakening. You'd open up their eyes, and I pray, for, Lord, for, uh, for our own churches to be evangelized. And God, I pray that, Father, you'd open up the eyes of the blind. I can't do it. Uh, open up the eyes of the blind, Lord, in this area, in this church, folks that come on Sunday morning. Uh, 